If you have your Bibles, be a good time to go ahead and grab those. We've got a great passage. Going to be learning all about circumcision. It's going to be good. Well, just to kick off, Jesus said that the two greatest commandments, something you guys have heard a lot because I say it at the end of every service, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And every part of the Old Testament laws and rituals and ceremonies were based on those two foundational principles. Jesus himself said about it, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when you read the Old Testament, you need to be... Like constantly referencing that when God requires something of us, it's to teach us we need to love Him and to teach us that we need to love our neighbor. It was one of those simple equations. To love God meant that you would put Him first and to love Him with all your heart meant to be devoted to who He is and what He stands for. And if you love Him, you will love those who are made in His image. Really simple, but also very complex when you get into the nitty-gritty and the details. And now Jesus notes in saying this, when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, he is presupposing that you love yourself. And that is perhaps one of the truest things we ever see about human beings. We seek our own way, our own honor, our own prestige. We seek our own comforts. We seek our own pleasures. Uh, We show love to ourselves that we ought to show first to God and then show to other people. And when we love ourselves and we don't get our own way, what do we do? We sulk, we feel miserable about ourselves, we lash out at those we love. And when we love ourselves, what other people think about us matters a lot, a lot more than it did before. What they think about us, how they feel about us matters a great deal. And when we love ourselves, we can become so inward thinking and so self-reflective that the truth of God becomes secondary to how we feel. That is not how we should be as Christians. And often what God does give us is things that constantly remind us of his love and mercy. And in the Old Testament, we see signs where he constantly gives us reminders and object lessons and things that get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes off our own self-pity and put them squarely on God's will and his purpose. And today's passage is going to help us understand what it really means to love God and to love others. And you may be thinking, how on earth are you going to get that from this passage? We'll find out. Let's get there. Okay, so we're going to be breaking up this passage into four little sections and kind of talking about them as we go through. I'm not going to read it all at once and then go through it. We're just going to go through it section by section. So we're going to start with Genesis 17, verse 1. The words will be up on the screen if you want to follow along with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's been 13 years since last week, what we saw with Ishmael being born. And we don't know what's happened in the meantime, but all we know is that from that moment, God speaks to him 13 years later, and he begins by saying, I am God Almighty. And this is the first time we see this phrase, El Shaddai, come up in Hebrew. And you may have heard this phrase before, but it's an incredibly important phrase throughout the breadth of the Bible. It is where we get this idea that God is omnipotent. Have you guys heard that phrase before, omnipotent? It comes from this Latin term, and it means all-powerful. And the root Hebrew term is Shaddad, which is also another interesting term. I won't go into it too far, but it... It's almost always used to speak of like destruction and power. When God says that I am God Almighty, He's saying I am all powerful. I'm terrifying. I'm magnificent. God is capable of accomplishing His plans. And He starts with Abraham telling him exactly what is going on. And when He acts and God acts powerfully, it is a terrifying thing to behold. And I think it's worth knowing in that word, El Shaddai is this concept of terror, this concept of destruction from God. And we're just going to see a glimpse in the coming chapters about how immense and powerful God's power is when we read of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God introduces himself to Abram in this way because he wants Abram to know he's going to fulfill all those promises that he's saying. He wants him to know. And Abram responds the only way you can to an all-powerful God, and he falls on his face. And we see that, I've already talked about it, but he falls on his face in reverence and awe. And up until now, this offspring that Abram was expecting, he thought it was going to come through Ishmael. For the last 13 years, Abram thought it was going to come through Ishmael. But it's about to change. God is going to flesh out a few more details of this covenant that he alone made with Abram in Genesis 15. But now, almost over a decade later, God's going to require something from Abram. He's going to require something from him. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. Abram had just plotted with his wife, Sarah, to get himself a son through some pretty dubious and suspect means. And just like all the times Abram has made plans like this, it's kind of worked out a bit too well, hasn't it? It's kind of worked out a bit too much in his favor and seems to come with strings attached. And every time there are more consequences for his lack of trust. And God is reminding Abram how he is to walk and how he has to conduct the whole of his life. You remember from last week, Coram Deo before the face of God. This is how Abram should be behaving. It's just to be his attitude that marked every step of what Abram did with his life. And God always has a pattern when he calls someone. It's grace first, obedience second. Grace first, obedience second. What do I mean? Well, every time that God is calling for obedience, it's after he's given so much grace. It's after he has already made a covenant. It's after Abram has already been counted righteous for his belief. Now God is going to require something from Abram. And straight up, he gets a name change. Finally, we get to call him Abraham. I've gotten so used to calling him Abram, I'm I'm definitely going to slip up quite a bit now. I think of him as Abram instead of Abraham, but we'll get get into it. And and you might remember, Abram Abram meant 
Exalted Father. Now imagine getting the name Exalted Father. When your parents gave it to you, they're, they're hoping for grandkids, right? They're already, as soon as you're born, they're like, yep, all right, we want those grandkids now, buddy. And so they call him Exalted Father. And it must have been a source of shame for him whenever he introduces himself to someone and says, oh, good day, my name's uh, Abram. They're like, Exalted Father, do you have kids? Ah, no, I don't, but I'm hoping to for the last, you know, 80 years or so, but we'll see if that changes. It's a point of, uh, I guess, irony and sadness for Abram, but he gets a name change. Abraham. It means a father of many nations. He He goes from being the exalted father to a father of many nations. And God reminds Abraham the terms of the covenant. That Abraham will be a father of a multitude of nations. That he blesses Abraham and he makes his covenant with him and his descendants. It's a household that God will bless. And it's his household of faith. We're going to see this work its way out through Scripture. And what God is doing here is he's making for himself a people. All throughout the Bible, the great narrative, the plan of salvation throughout the Bible is for God to rescue for himself a people. And here is where it's starting. Verse 7, God says at the end of verse 7 that he's going to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is selecting and choosing out of the whole world this man and his descendants to be his people and to bear his name and to keep his covenant. Nations and kings will come from Abraham. And God's salvation is going to come to the world through the descendants of Abraham. We know that ultimately through Jesus. And we often forget just how blessed this man was, just how important his legacy would be. And he was going to be this father of this great nation of all people who belong to God. That's a big calling. And look at the language in this. God says, I have made you a father of a multitude. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant. I will give to you and your offspring. Who's going to do all this? God makes it very clear. I will do this. I will accomplish this. It is not going to be Abraham's doing. It's all going to be God's doing. It's all just grace lavished upon Abraham, a man so far who has been making some pretty dodgy decisions. A man who has been making mistake after mistake after mistake. And God didn't choose Abraham because he was such a great guy. No, God chose Abraham because God is a loving, merciful gracious and powerful God who chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. This covenant would be everlasting. An eternal covenant. Nothing can take this away. Before this, nothing was certain. Before this, we're reading through the book of Genesis, there's always been one bad thing, getting worse, going from bad to worse. Every single time there's been wars and bloodshed and murder and judgment. In fact, the only other time an everlasting covenant is made is between God telling everyone that he's not going to destroy everyone again with a flood. But here's an everlasting covenant with hope before everything deteriorates. But here's our first hope that's everlasting. And it's made here with Abraham and his descendants. And this word everlasting is the exact same word 
referred to the tree of life as bringing life everlasting. Here we have that little hope that we're going to get back to the garden, that we're going to get back to who we are supposed to be. Everything we've lost could come back. But there's something for Abraham to do. This covenant would require a sign. And it was going to be a symbol to remind them again and again and again and again who they belong to. And so we're going to keep reading verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here we go. Circumcision has now entered into the scene. And this sign of circumcision is going to be the removal of the foreskin in every male uh, offspring, every baby, everyone that belonged to Abraham's household, Abraham's household. And this sign would come up at various times throughout Scripture. And it would carry a huge amount of meaning and purpose. In fact, fun fact for you guys, the word circumcision shows up 36 times in the Old Testament and exactly 36 times in the New Testament. It shows up a lot. It's actually really important in the breadth of the Bible. And you might be thinking, this is the first time I've kind of heard about it. Well, you've got to read a little bit more because it is all throughout the testimony of Scripture. It's something we need to understand. And here's some important points to stress about this covenant. Every male had to be circumcised. This is what God is saying. He's making it clear. If you were going to belong to this covenant, you had to do it. And if you were not, you would be cut off from the promise. You would be cast out of this great covenant. You have broken the covenant. This isn't optional. God has not given us an optional thing to do for for his people, for Abraham's descendants. This is something he's given to them and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons and you can follow the line down as long as you want. They belong to Abraham. Every boy had to be circumcised. And to disobey God in this would to mean that you were cut off from the promise. And immediately, I don't want to downplay this sign. I don't want to pretend it's not that important because God makes it very clear with the wording here that this must be done. And if you don't do it, you break his covenant. But why circumcision? Why this sign? Why is this the thing that God decides will mark his people? I'm not quite sure. I'll tell you some thoughts that I have. I find it interesting that this sign comes after Abraham commits sexual immorality with Hagar and takes for himself a second wife. Anytime a son of Abraham would consider any sort of sexual sin, like his great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, he'll have that physical reminder right there of who he belongs to and where the promise came through. It's kind of an obvious reminder of who you belong to. Uh, But we don't really know particularly why that sign. However, 
we all learn effectively through object lessons. Object lessons are kind of what we do. When we all gather together, we all have different ceremonies. We all have symbols all throughout it. Uh, our life, whenever we get together and watch a footy game, what do they sing? The national anthem. Because that is an important sign, an object lesson of who we want our country to be. And we sing those words every time we gather together in games like that. Sometimes we do acknowledgements to countries and we talk about traditional custodians of these lands. We talk about that stuff because they have a purpose. They have a sim symbology. They have a reason for why we do it. Human beings learn through object lessons. We don't have a single flag of any country out there that is not full of symbols. We love symbols as human beings. It's just simply who we are. We learn effectively through these means. And the Bible gives us hundreds of object lessons. Literally, perhaps even thousands of object lessons. I didn't go through and count them all. But there is a lot, and they're all great teaching moments. It's very important in this ancient context to have a sign like this. Because they didn't have all the benefits that we have. They can't just whip out their phone, go straight to Google and like look something up or anything like that. In fact, they wouldn't even be able to do that because they weren't even able to read or write, most people. Only the very elite of the elite were given the opportunity. It was very rare to have books or scrolls, especially during the time of Abraham. It would have been unheard of. Only a minority could read it. Communication was done th through signs and symbols and rituals, and ceremonies, and clothing. And the Bible is full of these rituals, and ceremonies, and sacrifices, and symbols, and all of these signs point beyond themselves, right? They point beyond themselves to a greater reality. When you look at the Australian flag, and you see the Union Jack right up in the corner, you know that that is a symbol and a sign of something. It's a symbol and a sign of the fact that we belong to the Commonwealth, and our monarch is the Queen. We have all these different signs and symbols, and they're really important. And for a Hebrew man, he would always have this daily reminder that he belonged to God and he was a member of God's everlasting covenant and he needed to pass this on to his children. Absolutely essential, absolutely important. This covenant is with a household. It is with a lineage. It is with a legacy. It's a sign that you belong to God and God belonged to you, that you were one of his people. There were potential health reasons for why it's beneficial for men to be circumcised. In fact, it's a uh, surgical procedure that they still do today for health reasons. Uh, I won't go into it. We don't need an anatomy lesson or anything like that. But a lot of sand in the Middle East, you know, you don't want that getting caught anywhere. That causes a lot of disease even today. Uh, it's well documented. So there were good health reasons for why you should do this. But how does this tie back to walking before God and being blameless? This is what God says to Abraham beforehand. Well, later in Scripture, circumcision would become a sign of cleansing. A sign of cleansing. On the eighth day, a boy would be brought to be circumcised. Another weird bit of trivia. I'll, I'll try to stop throwing these all in. But if you see the pain threshold of babies, it goes up but for boy babies. But on the eighth day, it plummets. And the boys are pretty much at the lowest point they'll ever be in their entire life for feeling pain. Really fascinating. On the eighth day. And that's why they do it on the eighth day. Uh, that's why God, in his mercy and his forbearance, put that there. Uh, and this, this symbol, on the eighth day, when a boy would be circumcised, it was a symbol of removal of sin from your life. A removal of a former way and a new way. And it was belonging to a covenant community of God's people who were different and distinct from the rest of the world. 
They were different, distinct from the rest of the world. Once you were circumcised, you can't uncircumcise yourself again. And once it's done, it is done. You carry the mark for the rest of your life. It makes you distinct. And the Hebrews who followed Yahweh and were in the covenant community of Abraham were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be distinct. And you could never not be a member of that household once you got into it. It's fascinating. And in the law of Moses, all the washings, all the purification rituals, even the, even the cleaning of pots and pans were all external symbols of an internal reality. And God is always giving these outward symbols to point towards an inward attitude and an inward life. Really important to know. And here is this powerful, intimate and irreversible symbol that Hebrew men would have to wear to bring them back to this reality that they would have to walk before God and be blameless before him. That was their symbol. Very intimate one. Let's keep reading verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, Sarah your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is where Abraham is shocked. His wife, Sarah, is going to get pregnant and she's going to have a child. And she will be included in this great covenant promise. And she's going to get a new name. Sarah is a bit of a, you know, I don't know, hard, hard to pronounce, but this is much better. We get Sarah. And her name means princess. The only letter changed is a yod to a hey, or if you want to talk about English, it's an I to a H. And the addition of the H signifies in the Hebrew a state of grace, a state of being bestowed a gift. And this is the story for Sarah, really. She's going to be blessed with grace. She's going to be blessed with a gift. She's going to be graciously given a son well past her childbearing age, and she was going to be a mother of a multitude. It's amazing. And Abraham can't help, can't help himself but laugh, right? He just laughs. It's so amazing that Abraham has no other response than to just laugh with joy and just astonishment that how on earth is this going to happen? Now, it's not a doubtful laugh. It's not a mocking or scornful laugh. This is a laugh of gladness and bewilderment. It's just like, how is this? What is going on? Like, how can you respond except for just joy? Abraham's going to be 100 and Sarah 90. But we see in verse 18 that Abraham, he's grown to love his son Ishmael, hasn't he? It's 
spent 13 years with this son, the one son that he's ever gotten. And he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But Ishmael's not the chosen son. He's not the son through whom God intended the covenant to go through. And Abraham's attempts to have another son by other means won't subvert or change the plans of God. God will establish his covenant with Isaac. And his name in the original Hebrew is Yitzach, which I prefer Isaac, the transliteration into English, but it means one who laughs, one who laughs. It's, a, it's the name of someone filled with joy. And Isaac would be a son of great rejoicing and laughter. But notice, Ishmael is not forgotten. Ishmael is not forgotten. He will also receive a blessing and be a great nation just from the sheer fact that Abraham is his father. God doesn't hold Ishmael to account for the failure of his father, but blesses him alongside Isaac, even though the covenant will not come through Ishmael. And look how Abraham reacts to all of this. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And you notice the repetition, but the repetition is there because it's really important. The way that Hebrew conveys importance is by repeating it again and again and again. And the reason it's important is we see that Abraham obeys God all the way. All the way. He doesn't withhold anything. He obeys God completely and fully and immediately. That very day is the day in which he bears the sign and symbol of that covenant. And it would have been a very sore household for quite a while. And every male in the household, just as God had directed Abraham, was circumcised. And they would all carry this physical representation of the covenant of God. This outward sign was supposed to be an inward symbol of their commitment to him and his commitment to them. Very important sign. Very early in the history of Israel, God makes an amazing promise to Abraham's descendants. And we see it in Deuteronomy 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Absolutely fascinating what's going on here. God promises to circumcise the heart of his people, to cut off something from their heart, to cut off something from who they are. Why? Why is he doing it? Well, the result of it is that they will love him. They will love him with all their heart and with all their soul. So the implication is, is he's going to cut off the part of your heart that does not love him. He's going to cut off the part of your soul that does not adore him and delight in him and hold him as the highest thing. Circumcision was only an outward symbol of what was supposed to be an inward reality. It was supposed to be something that happened inside us, within our hearts, who we are. And in the Hebrew mindset, the heart was the seat of personality. Your heart was kind of who you were. 
And so we see this physical symbol of what God wanted to happen into each and every heart of his people. And it symbolized your commitment to God and your love for his covenant. And this was a sign of God's grace because we see here who's doing the circumcising of the heart. It's God. The Jews were looking forward to a time when God would do this work in their heart. It was a promise from God, that something was going to happen. And this is the central message of the Old Testament. Circumcise your hearts. It shows up again and again and again and again. Be radically committed to God. Love the Lord your God. Circumcise your hearts. But ultimately, as this passage points out, it's going to be done by God. Abraham was circumcised on that day and every male of his household was circumcised that day but his heart was already changed beforehand. His heart was already different. The symbol of circumcision, unfortunately, was so dominant in the history of Israel that it became the thing. They kind of forgot about the whole point of circumcision of the heart and started focusing on the physical sign of circumcision. There was too much force placed on the fact that you belong to the covenant simply by being circumcised. And it even got to the point where if you were a Jew by descent and you were circumcised on the eighth day, well, it didn't really matter how you lived or what you did as long as you were circumcised because that meant that you were part of the covenant. That meant that you were going to be saved. That meant that you were ultimately part of God's people. It didn't matter how you walked, whether you lived a blameless life, whether you walked before God even at all. If you were circumcised, that's all that mattered. That's quite problematic. But for them, as long as you're circumcised, you're good to go. You're in. Some people think if they were baptized as a baby, they're in. So central was this sign that in Acts 15 verse 1, we see this. This is the early church. Uh, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is the Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was a controversy in the early church. Gentiles, of which I am one, believed in Jesus. So then the question is, what are all these Gentile Christians going to do? Because it's very clear in Genesis 17 that if you aren't circumcised, you're cut off from the promise. And so these Jews are coming in and saying, if you don't go get the snip, it's going to go badly for you. You're not going to be saved. Jesus cannot save you unless you're circumcised. This was the message. It's a big call. According to these men, none of the male Gentile Christians were even saved. But is that true? Does a man have to get circumcised to be saved by Jesus? No. Too many of them got caught up with the object lesson that they forgot what it was pointing to. We have that tendency all the time. So many people look to the bread and blood of Jesus during communion, right? And they think that it turns into the literal body of Christ and that Christ is sacrificed again and that by eating it, you receive more grace. No, it sacrifices once and for all. That symbol pointed to something else, right? It's pointed to an outward thing. But we often put our hopes in the object lessons of the Bible, not realizing that they point to eternal and spiritual realities. These are simply physical symbols pointing to a better reality. When we get baptized, baptism does not save you. 
When you get dunked in the water, it doesn't wash any of your sins off. Your sins are still there when you come out of the water. But it's a symbol, right? Of what the Spirit does in us. And God gives us all these symbols as teaching lessons to us. Often I think you should just get baptized in winter because that shocking experience of going in that water will always remind you of the physical sign. <laughs> Poor Grace, she's there. everyone's thinking about it right now. And all of these symbols that we see, whether they're in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, all point to Jesus. All to Jesus. But they point us to a new heart. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. True circumcision is done in the heart of every person who believes in Jesus. And that future hope that Israel has been waiting for all of this time came through Jesus. That promise that your hearts will be circumcised came through Jesus. When your hearts were changed and you became new and you became a new creation. Right? Listen to Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We've moved beyond circumcision now. We're made new in Jesus. It's no longer applicable because the sign that it was pointing to has come. The everlasting covenant that it was pointing to has come through Jesus and he has made us new in his death, burial and resurrection. And by believing in Jesus and trusting in him, you can skip the physical circumcision and move straight to what it meant all along. And that was a new heart. A heart that was transformed a heart that was redeemed by the Holy Spirit, a heart free from sin and the penalty of sin, a life transformed in the blood of Jesus. And so next time we feel a bit awkward or weird about some of the parts that we find in the Bible, know that they're there by God's purpose and His design. And he put them there deliberately. He put them there because he wanted us to know of a higher and greater reality. And when God has written his word, he's not just writing it to us privileged 21st century people, but he is writing it to the entire breadth and history of the church. And he writes it so that all people from all times in all areas can understand and know and believe in his son, Jesus. And so we have this greater and higher reality in Jesus. And so my question is this, is your heart changed? Has your heart been made new? Have these sins been cut off? Because we know God's mercy is more and there is no sin that can separate us. There is no sin that God cannot cut from us in the work of Jesus through the cross. There is no person that is so bad that they cannot be redeemed, that they cannot be made into a new creation. And so has this work of new creation been done in your life? Does God's word speak to you now where before you just couldn't understand it? Is God matter to you now whereas before he was kind of just a means to an end? My challenge is this. Where do we see 
areas in our life cut off? Where do we see God claiming more dominion and rule within our lives? Where do we see God making us new? And if we have wandered far, and if we feel like we have been chasing after other things, well, today is the day that we get right with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that 2,000 years ago you made us right. That by us believing in you, you counted it to us as righteousness. By having the faith that you would fulfill your promises and all that you have said that you would do, Lord, you have given us your Holy Spirit and that beautiful sign of circumcision was made available to all when their hearts were changed and they were made into a new creation. Lord, we know that we have wandered far and that sometimes we press into our old ways and things that we did in our former life. But Lord, would you once again point us back to the things of the Spirit? Would we walk by the Spirit? Would we be blameless in the Spirit? And would these things take us once again? And Would your word just open up to us? And would we love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind? Thank you, Lord, that you promised to do this work in us because we would be so incapable of doing it ourselves we love you lord and we praise you and it's in jesus name we pray amen